everybody, welcome back to Access. This is Timothy, and I'm glad that you're joining me in studying the scriptures today. So we've been studying through the book of Genesis for about the past five months now, and we've covered a lot of things, from creation, to the fall, to the flood, to the table of nations and the Tower of Babel, and straight through the patriarchs, Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we've learned about a lot of things, like covenants, blessings, and curses, And we've also been able to look at some God patterns and his governing dynamics. And before we continue our Genesis study today, I just want to have a closer look at these God patterns. The first one that we've seen a lot of is how God divides, elects, and separates. Today we call this pattern sanctification. What's sanctification exactly? Well, this is the act of God dividing, electing, and separating people for his purposes, uh, where he sets people apart for himself where he elevates people from a common worldly status to a set-apart holy status. Kind of like how Israel was set apart for God as his holy people, believers today have been sanctified, or um, believers today have been divided, separated, and elected to become children of God, to conform to his will, and to serve him. You see, God actually declared believers to be holy and set-apart, much like he did with the set-apart tribe of the set-apart nation of Israel, the tribe of Levi, the Levites, who were the priests of Israel. And in the New Testament, believers of Yeshua are called the holy nation and his royal priesthood. So sanctification is the first of God's governing dynamics. The second of God's governing dynamics uh, that we'll be discovering more of today is called divine providence divine providence. Now you might have heard me say how I believe that God works with our decisions and our choices. And sometimes it might seem like God had created us and then just left us to our own devices as we chart our own destiny. But what if I told you that God's will is always done? What if in our ignorance, we just couldn't see that God was actually guiding us as we were exercising our ability to choose? Now, I'm not suggesting that we always choose the right thing. (laughs) Clearly, we don't. But I do believe that even in our current circumstances, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And I believe that God's divine providence is constantly at work, and it's making its way toward its inevitable and unchangeable God-ordained conclusion. Friends, as we continue our study through the remaining chapters of Genesis, we're going to be able to observe this God pattern of divine providence ever so clearly as it's worked out in the life of Joseph. Our study today is called Spoken Dreams. If you need a handout for today's Access Learn study, please visit our Facebook group, Connections Ministries of Canada, and you can find all of our studies under the Files tab. Also visit our website at connectionsministries.com. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss out on any of our studies. As you listen today, I do recommend having a Bible handy to follow along. And I'd like to encourage you to take some time with your own Access Church communities and your small groups and review this study together. Now let's get started. Spoken Dreams. Today, my wife Beverly will be reading Genesis chapter 37 from the Complete Jewish Bible. Yaakov continued living in the land where his father had lived as a foreigner, the land of Canaan. Here is the history of Yaakov. When Yosef was seventeen years old, he used to pasture the flock with his brothers, even though he was still a boy. 
once he was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. He brought a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Yosef the most of all his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a long-sleeved robe. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they began to hate him, and reached the point where they couldn't even talk with him in a civil manner. Yosef had a dream, which he told his brothers, and that made them hate him all the more. He said to them, Listen, while I tell you about this dream of mine, we were tying up bundles of wheat in the field when suddenly my bundle got up by itself and stood upright. Then your bundles came, gathered around mine, and prostrated themselves before it. His brothers retorted, Yes, you will certainly be our king. You'll do a great job of bossing us around. And they hated him still more for his dreams and for what he said. He had another dream, which he told his brothers. Here, I had another dream, and there were the sun, the moon, and eleven stars prostrating themselves before me. He told his father, too, as well as his brothers. But his father rebuked him. What is this dream you have had? Do you really expect me, your mother, and your brothers to come and prostrate ourselves before you on the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. After this, when his brothers had gone to pasture their father's sheep in Shechem, Israel asked Yosef, Aren't your brothers pasturing the sheep in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. He answered, Here I am. He said to him, Go now, see whether things are going well with your brothers and with the sheep, and bring word back to me. So he sent him away from the Hebron Valley, and he went to Shechem, where a man found him wandering around in the countryside. The man asked him, What are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers, he answered. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the sheep? The man said, They've left here, because I heard them say, Let's go to Dotan. Yosef went after his brothers and found them in Dotan. They spotted him in the distance, and before he had arrived where they were, they had already plotted to kill him. They said to each other, Look, this dreamer is coming. So, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these water cisterns here. Then we'll say some wild animal devoured him. We'll see then what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuven heard this, he saved him from being destroyed by them. He said, We shouldn't take his life. Don't shed blood, Reuven added. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilds, but don't lay hands on him yourselves. He intended to rescue him from them later and restore him to his father. So it was that when Yosef arrived to be with his brothers, they stripped off his robe, the long-sleeved robe he was wearing, and took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty, without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat their meal, but as they looked up, they saw in front of them a caravan of Yishmaelim coming from Gilead, their camels loaded with aromatic gum, healing resin, and opium, on their way down to Egypt. Yehuda said to his brothers, What advantage is it to us if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelim instead of putting him to death with our own hands. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh. His brothers paid attention to him. So when the Midianim, merchants, passed by, they drew and lifted Yosef up out of the cistern and sold him for half a pound of silver shekels to the Ishmaelim, who took Yosef on to Egypt. Reuven returned to the cistern, and upon seeing that Yosef wasn't in it, tore his clothes in mourning. He returned to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I go now? They took Yosef's robe, killed a male goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. Then they sent the long-sleeved robe and brought it to their father, saying, We found this. Do you know if it's your son's robe or not? He recognized it and cried, It's my son's robe. Some wild animal has torn Yosef in pieces and eaten him. 
Yaakov tore his clothes, and putting sackcloth around his waist, mourned his son for many days. Though all his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, he refused all consolation, saying, No, I will go down to the grave to my son, mourning. And his father wept for him. In Egypt, the medium sold Yosef to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, a captain of the guard. As we're getting into Genesis 37, I think it's really important to take a, a few notes here. Um, remember Yitzhak, father to Yaakov and grandfather to Yosef and all the brothers? Well, Yitzhak was still alive at this point, and he even lived another 12 years after Yosef's disappearance in this chapter. So Yitzhak lived to see that the blessing that he pronounced over his twin sons, Esau and Yaakov, was finally unfolding. You see, Yaakov lived in the promised land of Canaan, and Esau had left it. He was living away from the fertile ground and away from the regular rainfall, just as Yitzhak had pronounced in his blessing. And there was another part of the prophetic blessing that was given by God to Abraham, which was also coming near to pass. It said for a time, the Hebrews would live as strangers in a foreign land and be oppressed. And if you read that in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, it says, Adonai said to Avram, Know this for certain, your descendants will be foreigners in a land that is not theirs. They will be slaves and held in oppression there 400 years. So just keep these things in mind as we get into Yosef's story. So right here in the first four verses, uh, we learn a few details that help give us a picture of this 17-year-old Yosef. We learn that he's a bit of a tattletale, he's Yaakov's favorite son, he wears a special garment that his father made for him, and his brothers hate him vehemently. <laughs> now let's break this down. The few older brothers that he tattled on were the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Now who were they? You might remember that they were Yaakov's concubines. But the Hebrew word that's used here specifically reads ish isha. If you remember, ish in Hebrew is man and isha is wife. And the term ish isha is one together as man and wife. So this term is used only to describe a legal wife. So this tells us that there was a change of status from concubines to legal wives. And this subtle mention of ish isha is a clue to some of the untold portion of Yaakov's family story. And now it's understood that at this point, both Rachel and Leah were deceased. So that may have been the reason for the elevated status of Bilhah and Zilpah. Now we know that Yaakov, aka Israel, always favored Rachel over all his wives and his two sons with her, Yosef and Benjamin. Now Yosef was his most beloved son, for whom he fashioned a ketonet pasim. In today's age, I've heard it spoken of as a technicolor dream coat or the multicolored robe. Uh, but this ketonet pasim, it was actually a royal tunic worn by princes. This was a royal garment and it had a covering from the neck all the way down to the wrists. So it was, it was long-sleeved and very pronounced. Anybody that saw it would know that this was a very special person wearing this special garment. And this Ketonet Basim became a visual trigger of jealousy and envy amongst the brothers, as it represented Israel's blatant favoritism of Yosef, who would prance around as an anointed prince of sorts. And the brothers were so filled with hate and envy that they couldn't even bring themselves to offer him the, the standard civil greeting 
of peace be with you. In these first few verses alone, Yosef isn't exactly sounding like my favorite kind of person. I mean, he sounds a bit like this obnoxious spoiled brat. I'm sure you've come across this type of person before. <laughs> I'm, in fact, sure, I'm quite certain that I was a bit of a Yosef in my own family. Okay, and, and sure, probably viewed that way by my peers at church and school as well. And sure, it's pretty annoying having this sort of person around, isn't it? And what we see happen next in verse 5 just makes me cringe when I read it. Yosef had a dream which he told his brothers and that made them hate him all the more. <laughs> now remember, Yosef was 11th out of 12 brothers and he lived in a sort of bubble of cluelessness that kept him from recognizing the reality of his brother's hatred toward him. So when he has this dream, it excites him and he fuels the flame of his brother's anger by opening his big mouth and ignorantly boasting. Oh, Yosef, it's kind of funny to see his brother's reaction as they're mocking him and they're pretty much disregarding anything that his dreams implied. But notice his father, Israel's response. He rebukes Yosef, but he also keeps these dreams in his mind. Take note that in this era, dreams and visions were standard ways that people thought that their gods communicated to them. And people generally believed these prophetic visions and oracles, but it was also understood that the dreamer's personal aspirations may have also played a part in the dreams. So dreams were like part God and part the dreamer's aspirations. Now notice that God communicates with Yosef through dreams rather than direct two-way communication as he did with the patriarchs, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Now why is that? Something to consider. As we move into verses 12 and 13, I, I feel that the tone of the conversation between Israel and Yosef is just riddled with anxious uncertainty. Uh, we see Israel ask Yosef, aren't your brothers um, pasturing the sheep out in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And then we see Yosef respond with, Hineni, here I am. He's giving his undivided attention to his father, and he's ready for whatever errand his dad's going to send him on. So Israel then gives directions. He says, listen, go and check, see if everything's going well over there, and then bring word back to me. So Yosef leaves his father, who's going to wait and expects him to return home with a report. But sadly, Yosef never makes it back. And this would be the last time he sees his home in Hebron. Now, why did Israel call Yosef to check on his brothers pasturing in Shechem? This was 50 miles north of Hebron. Now, remember Shechem. Uh, just a few years prior to this, they had slaughtered all the men in Shechem on account of their sister Dina having been raped. You see, the desire for vengeance in the Middle East has been a long time reality, even to this day. And perhaps this was the reason Israel wanted to check on the well-being of his sons and his flocks. Well, when Yosef reaches Shechem, his brothers are nowhere to be found. And he's told by a man that he overheard them saying they were moving on to Dotan. Now, Dotan means two wells. And this town was 15 miles north of Shechem. Um, so this was a full three days journey from Hebron. When Israel sent Yosef to check on his brothers, he wasn't just sending them down the street and look into the field. No, he was sending him on a few days' journey, and now he's three days away from home. Now, Dotan, what's so special about it? Well, it was this lush, hilly land, 
and it was a site that was well-traveled by merchants on their journeys to where? To Egypt. Now that gives us a little bit of a hint uh, when we start to look at God's providence at work. Remember, at the beginning of this study, I had made mention about the prophetic blessing of God to Abraham, where he said, uh, your descendants are going to be foreigners in a land that's not theirs. Well, that's why this gives us a little bit of a hint. These merchants that are traveling through Dotan are typically making their way to Egypt, which is a land outside of the promised land, Canaan. In verse 18, from the vantage point of the hilly lands of Dotan, uh, the brothers see Yosef, the dreamer, approaching, and we're told that they're already plotted to kill him. And now was their opportunity. It was perfect. They were in Dotan, the land with two wells. And they're like, let's just kill him now and throw him into one of these water cisterns, one of these wells. And then we see the firstborn, Reuven, step in and he tries to reason with his brothers not to take his life and shed blood, and instead to throw him into this dry well in the wilds. Now, he was making it appear that he was looking out for them so that they wouldn't have Yosef's blood on their hands. Eventually, this sort of criminal behavior would become prohibited under the Mosaic law. But what was Reuven's real intent here? I mean, he planned to rescue Yosef and return him to Israel. But why? Well, doing that would have earned him some serious points and hopefully gained some favor from his father. Can you just imagine the shock and the horror that Yosef must have experienced when he finally reached his brothers? The passage in verse 23 just states very matter-of-fact and plainly that uh, Yosef was stripped of his royal tunic, he was thrown into the empty well, and he was left to starve to death while his brothers sat down to eat. Now, I have no idea what must have been going on through the brothers' minds as they were sitting there eating, knowing that their brother was just in that dry well and they're waiting for him to die. Like, what was the plan then? You know, okay, let's just, we have his tunic, let's just bring it back to dad and we'll convince him that some wild animal ate him. It's just a very unsettling situation, isn't it? Fortunately for them, just as soon as they began their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Yishmaelim, traveling from Gilead through Dotan on their way to Egypt. Then the fourth son, Yehuda, saw an opportunity to make some material gains by selling Yosef as a slave, instead of just letting him die of starvation in the pit. Now, it's not surprising that Yehuda also takes on a virtuous tone as he justifies his suggestion. Oh, he's our brother after all, our very own flesh and blood. We shouldn't let him die. This is better. Well, yeah, it's better if you're greedy. You get rid of your problem, in their case, um, the annoying Bradley little brother that you hate to the point of speechlessness, and you walk away with the profit. Essentially, they're getting paid for somebody else to take away their problems. <laughs> it's genius. As we look a little closer to these passages, um, in verse 25, it mentions Yishmaelim, or Ishmaelites, and in verse 28, it mentions Midianim, merchants, or Midianites. And just to clear up any confusion of to whom they actually sold Yosef as a slave, uh, let's review who these people are. Well, both come from the sons of Avraham. Yishmael was from Hagar, and Midian was from Keturah. 
So the term Yishmaelim likely had been used to refer to all the Semitic peoples living in the area of Arabia, and Midianim was more of a specific identification of people. All right, question. Why was Reuven so distraught when he returned to the well and found that it was empty? Keep in mind that as firstborn, he had the most to lose because of his father's special preference toward Yosef. Yet, he still tried to intervene and come to Yosef's rescue. So, why? Well, as the eldest, he would have been held responsible by his father if anything were to happen to his favorite son, Yosef. Now, remember, Reuven was the one who attempted a coup against his father by having sex with Bilhah and claiming his father's concubine as his prize. However, that was a failed coup attempt, and we know this because we see that Yaakov ends up taking Bilhah as his legal wife anyway, despite the fact that she was ruined by Reuven. Now that says a lot about how Yaakov regarded, or better yet, disregarded, Reuven's position as the firstborn. Okay, so he gets back to the well, sees that Yosef's not there, and then it says that he tore his clothes. Now, this was a display of deep sorrow and mourning, and his grief manifested how much he actually wanted to rescue Yosef. So let's just say, metaphorically speaking, that he had dug himself like this really big, deep hole, and he needed to claw his way out of his current situation. Oh, the irony. I mean, I could just sense the weight of his despair when I read his words in verse 30, when he says, Where can I go now? Have you ever experienced that sort of anxious helplessness? I mean, sometimes fear and defeat can lead us to take drastic measures to save our own necks. And for Reuven, that meant joining his brothers in the cover-up. This was probably his only option. So the ten brothers take this three-day return journey from Dotan back home to Hebron and to their father Israel, who had been anxiously waiting for Yosef to return with a report. They didn't even have to tell their lie. They just presented the bloodstained tunic to their father, saying that they found it and asked him whether or not it was his son's. Israel came to the conclusion himself that a wild animal had torn Yosef to pieces and eaten him. Just as he had deceived his father Yitzhak with a lie, Israel was now deceived by his own son's lie. Ouch. So Israel tears his clothes and puts on sackcloth to mourn Yosef for many days. Notice in verse 35, it says that all his sons and daughters try to comfort him. In reality, they're only pretending to comfort him, right? If they truly desired to comfort him, they could have done so by maybe uh, telling the truth. But of course, to cover up a lie, more lies must be told, right? That is a wickedness of the sin of lies and hypocrisy. And in a way, it might appear that Israel was receiving the punishment of his own sin that was long delayed. All our actions have consequences, and we are not free from the natural consequences of our sins. Israel refused to be consoled and said, No, I will go down to the grave to my son mourning. Now the Hebrew word used here for grave is Sheol. And this is the first time that Sheol is used in scripture. This term doesn't refer to an earthly burial plot, however. I mean, how could it in this case, right? Yosef's body wasn't there. 
he supposedly was torn to pieces and eaten up. So what is this Sheol? Well, it's understood to be the place where the departed souls are gathered after death. Keep in mind that at this point in history, there was no real uh, concrete concept of an afterlife. This chapter ends kind of abruptly, and it simply gives us readers a bit of resolve. What happens to Yosef? Well, he makes it to Egypt, and the Midianim sold him to a high-ranking official named Potiphar. So here we are at the end of our study today. I'd like to do a quick recap, and let's see if we can observe God's governing dynamic of divine providence at work here in chapter 37. Ready? Yosef has some dreams. He chooses to tell his family about these dreams. It causes his brothers to hate him more than they already did. The brothers were pasturing the flock in Shechem, but choose to travel to Dotan. They didn't know that Yosef was traveling to meet them. The brothers choose to act on their plot to kill him. One brother chooses to intervene, thus sparing Yosef's life. Another brother chooses to profit from ridding themselves of Yosef and sells him as a slave to Midianim merchants, thus sparing his life. The Midianim travel to Egypt with Yosef in tow. Once in Egypt, the Midianim choose to sell Yosef to Potiphar. Yosef is now a foreigner in a land that is not the promised land of Canaan. Now, notice how in all these situations, people were just making their own choices. But do you see how all these actions worked in a way to sustain Yosef and bring him to where God meant for him to be? In Egypt. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I believe God works with our choices. And I believe that his will is always done. That doesn't mean that we always choose the right thing, but I can trust God's prophetic word and his perfect timing to reveal his divine providence. Friends, I'm really looking forward to studying the remaining chapters of Genesis with you and discovering more about God's divine providence. I hope you prayerfully read through these passages again at your own pace and ask God to reveal the message and his truths that he has for you to discover. I strongly recommend that you take some time to gather together with your own Access Church communities and review these studies together and share what God's Spirit has been revealing to you as you read His Holy Scriptures. Just a couple items that you could discuss with your Access groups this week. How would you have responded to Yosef if he was your brother? Have you allowed your heart to become hardened by bitterness and envy like Yosef's brothers? Have you observed God's providence at work in your life? And what experiences have led you to trust God more? Friends, thank you so much for joining us for today's Access Learn study. As always, it's such a joy to be able to get around God's word and learn more about his plan and his purposes and about his amazing love and his promises. I'm so excited to see where he'll lead us next. May the grace of our Lord Yeshua and the Shalom of God our Father be with all. Amen. Jesus, I'm grateful you'd say